Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and today is such a treat because I have Sharon Salzberg as my guest, and she is a pioneer of bringing meditation to the United States. She's a world-renowned teacher and New York Times bestselling author of 11 books and truly was one of the first people to bring meditation and mindfulness into America and into mainstream culture. So her relatable, easy-to-do approach is going to change your day, your week, your month, your parenting your self-care. And it's so not this untouchable thing. It's a real practice. And all of her work is really rooted in the idea that this isn't just some unattainable thing of peace and calm and sitting and doing a mantra. And so we're going to talk through today how to engage in practice and how that practice can help raise kids who are resilient and have self-regulation and can be mindful. This is kind of interesting because we're starting with a mindfulness practice just to get us in the headspace. So if you're driving, it'll be a little bit different than if you're walking or sitting alone. But I really am thrilled to have her. She is truly an extraordinary teacher. And if you enjoy this episode, the good news is she has her own podcast, The Meta Hour and 11 books and a gazillion online courses that you can take and a retreat center. And you can find all of that in the show notes. And if you enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate and write a little review. And of course, DM me with your questions at Raising Good Humans podcast on my Instagram. I love hearing from you. So hi, I usually like to start when I can by just having us do a short meditation together. It's a way of more fully arriving wherever we are, whatever we were just doing. There's a certain amount of energy that just needs to be expended to be here together. And so to more fully maximize that and, and actually be more present, let's do just a little bit of practice together. So you can sit comfortably, just be at ease, close your eyes or not. If it seems reasonable, if you're not driving, for example, and if you feel comfortable, you can have them open as well. That's fine. I want to start just by listening to sound, which may be the sound of my voice or other sounds, it's a way of relaxing deep inside, allowing our experience to come and go. And of course, we like certain sounds and we don't like others, but we don't have to chase after them to hold on or push away. Unless you're responsible for responding to the sound, you can just let it wash through you. And bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. See if you can feel the earth supporting you. Feel space touching you. Usually we think about touching space. We think about 
like picking up a finger and poking it in the air. But space is already touching us. It's always touching us. We just need to feel it. Bring your attention to your hands and see if you can make this shift from the more conceptual level, like go fingers, to the worlds of direct sensation, picking up warmth, coolness, pressure, whatever it might be. You don't have to name these things, but feel them. And bring your attention to the feeling of your breath, just the normal, natural breath wherever you feel it most distinctly. Maybe that's the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen. You can find that place, bring your attention there and just rest. See if you can feel one breath without concern for what's already gone by, without leaning forward for even the very next breath. Just this one right now. And if your attention starts to slip away, you get lost in thought, spun out in fantasy, or you fall asleep, truly don't worry about it. We say the most important moment is actually the next moment after you've been gone, after you've been lost, where we have the chance to let go gently of whatever. And with kindness toward ourselves, instead of judgment, return our attention to the feeling of the breath. So we rest our attention on the breath. We find out that we're gone. We see if we can let go and just begin again. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze and we'll end the meditation. Well, (laughs) that was so nice for me. Thank you for all of us. Welcome. Thank you for being here and thank you for doing that. Oh, well, thank you. So I'm going to jump right in and ask you if you could just get us back to the basics of how you look at practice and define mindfulness. I think of meditation practice as a kind of skills training. And it's a few different skills that are being developed. And I think that's true regardless of which technique or method you might choose to use. The first of the skills is commonly known as concentration. And that's based on the idea that just as human beings having a human life, we tend to be kind of scattered or distracted. Maybe not in every arena of life, but But often, you know, you might just sit down to think something through and before you know it, we're gone. And they say our minds tend to go to the past and often to something where we now have some regret. Like I should have said more. I should have said nothing. Why did I show up? Why didn't I show up? And we're not doing that in a way that's useful, which is also a possibility, but just not our general habit. You know, we're not thinking how to make amends or for lessons learned. We're just going over and over and over and over something that we now can't change. And or, and I'd say, especially in a time like ours, it's an and, our minds jump to the future and we create a scenario that has not happened and may never happen. And we're all freaked out about that. So that's a huge amount of our own energy our own life energy that's just thrown away into the past or into the future. And so what we do in the practice of concentration is we gather. We do exactly actually what we just did. We rest our attention on a certain object. Could be the feeling of the breath, could be something else happening in the body, could be listening to sound, could be a word, a mantra, uh, an image, really it could be anything. But we rest our attention on that object and then When our attention wanders, because it will, we learn how to let go gently and we learn how to begin again. Uh, We don't have to blame ourselves or consider ourselves a failure. And that's why this form of meditation is actually considered a kind of resilience training. Because you think about how many times a day do you have to course correct or you've actually kind of fallen down in a way and you need to 
pick yourself up or let others help you up. You have to start over. It's a lot of times in the day. It's a lot of times in the day. And you actually gave an incredible description of, I'm going to mess this up. So I'm just going to remind you. And I think it was regarding anxiety, but there's a course correction in it of an invitation as a house guest almost who's yeah. not staying, maybe just staying for coffee. And I was just thinking about That's it right. because you were talking about like, of course you can place your attention on an object or a, a word or a thing or whatever, but, and you, you will lose your attention and then you bring it back. Mm-hmm. And that just reminded me of just not trying to force ourselves unrealistically. Right. That That's a perfect description actually of, the next skill, you know, which I would talk about, which is mindfulness. And that's a word that, you know, can mean a lot of different things. And it's certainly gotten a lot more popular these days, which is very funny in a way. Um, but mindfulness basically means a quality of awareness so that our perception of what's happening in the present moment is not distorted by like old habits or by bias. So, for example, very commonly, if we feel discomfort in our bodies, we feel heartache, we feel disappointment, immediately we project into the future, like what's going to feel like tonight? What's going to feel like tomorrow? What's going to feel like next week? So not only do we have the actual uncomfortable emotion or, or physical sensation, we have all that anticipation, Yes. you know, and we've added it on top and we're trying to bear it all at once. And we feel defeated. We feel overcome. Or there are certain emotions where, you know, we've just been taught, don't go there. That's not acceptable. And that very emotion comes up. And what do we do? We try to block it. We try to push it away. It doesn't really work. Or we just add on in some way. You know, we have a difficult experience and it becomes much, much bigger. Like uh, I use this example in one of my books about a woman in a gym see if I have to remember the story correctly. There was a woman in the gym who had worked out or done whatever. And then she was in the locker room changing and she was wearing pantyhose, which is, you know, a throwback. But anyway, she pulled on the, yeah. the pantyhose and there was a rip in them. And she said out loud something like, damn it, I need a new life. And this woman who overheard her said, no, you don't. You just need a new pair of pantyhose. Right. You know, so we can just, things can explode on us. And so what happens with mindfulness is that we see those tendencies to add on whatever, and we see it quickly. We learn how to let go. Here's that word again, the term again. We let go of the add on and we're left with a direct experience of what is. And maybe that's uncomfortable. Maybe it's, it is pain in our bodies or it's heartache or it's disappointment, but it's not that plus everything else, you know? So mindfulness is really a way of being aware. It's about the way we're relating to what we are aware of. And we see, we may have very distorted habits about painful things. You know, we see our own jealousy, we see our own fear and we think this is bad. It's wrong. I should be ashamed. So that's a big add on that doesn't help. Or maybe we have, and many people do ironically enough, also have Uh, big habits of adding on things when things are wonderful and they feel really good and you start thinking I don't deserve it or, you know, whatever it might be. And so we learn to kind of experience whatever is happening almost in a more pure way, you know, as it's actually presenting itself. How do you distinguish between getting rid of the noise so that you can experience the, the actual pantyhose ripping and then just Mm -hmm. knowing that you need a new pair of pantyhose, but that you don't need a new life and not ruminating on the pantyhose themselves. How do you have the moment, acknowledge the moment, have the moment visit you and yet let go of it after so that you can then move to the next moment? Well, that, that I think is, is really practice. And so it may be that the image you were thinking of is something I often use where I talk about sitting at home, like minding your own business. And then there's a knock at the door 
Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, that one. Yeah, because there's the whole um, philosophy behind it, which is that these things that arise in our minds are just visiting. And we take them to be like the core of who we are, like, I'm such an angry person and I always will be. But in fact, the anger comes and goes based on conditions and joy comes and goes based on conditions. And yet we don't tend to treat, especially the painful things, we don't tend to treat them as visitors. And so the image I came up with um, based on that philosophy was sitting at home, minding my own business when I hear a knock at the door. So I go to open the door and there's fear or jealousy or greed or something I, I really don't want to recognize as having visited me. And either I like swing open the door, forgetting who lives here and, and say, welcome home. It's all yours. Like, just take over, whatever. Or I'm so ashamed and so frightened at the appearance of this visitor that I kind of desperately shut the door and... Unfortunately, that doesn't really work. You know, then that visitor will find a way to get in. It'll come in the window or it'll crawl down the chimney or something. And so one part of the whole sort of meditative skill is like, what do you do when you open that door? And you're facing an emotional state that's really difficult, genuinely so. You know, can we learn to be really present and balanced? Remember, this is just a visitor. And be kind to ourselves and and to the appearance of that state. Because if we get really angry and we get frightened, it's just going to intensify the problem. And so um, there's a certain kind of compassion even there. So what they say, uh, like in in Tibetan culture, they say um, there's a whole practice, which I will vastly oversimplify by saying, (laughs) um, let's say you have a a visitor and it's kind of unappealing. (laughs) as a visitor, invited in for dinner. Like, keep an eye on it. Don't let it have the run of the house. Like, don't just say, okay, you know, you terrible mind state, like, take over. Let me let me just drown in this for, you know, forever. It's not like that. Keep an eye on it, but you don't have to be so afraid. You don't have to be so freaked out at what you're experiencing because your awareness is actually strong enough and big enough to accommodate what's happening. It's like if you saw a child having a temper tantrum, you know, something like that. And so what we do at that moment, according to this, you know, practice is invite the visitor in for dinner. So I used that example once teaching in a room full of people uh, back in those days and somebody didn't like it. And uh, I said, okay, how about inviting them in for a cup of tea. And they said, well, how about a cup of tea to go? (laughs) So I said, okay, if that's the extent of your hospitality, but the whole point of all that is balance, you know, we can recognize what we're feeling. In fact, my favorite example of mindfulness came from an article many years ago in the New York times, where they were talking about a pilot program, bringing mindfulness into the classroom. And this was a fourth grade classroom. Uh, in Oakland, California. So the kids are, let's say, nine or 10 years old. And the journalist asked one of the kids, like, what is mindfulness? What is mindfulness? And he said, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's what mindfulness means. And I thought, what a great definition of mindfulness. Because what does it imply? It implies, you know, you're feeling angry when you're starting to feel angry not after it's escalated, not after you've sent that email, for example, but just as it's beginning. It also implies a certain balanced relationship to the anger because if you get swept up in all these changing emotional states and overwhelmed, you're likely to hit a lot of people in the mouth because life can be really frustrating. But at the same time, if you're so embarrassed at what you're feeling and you don't like it and try to repress it and you try to push it away, you get tighter and tighter and tighter till you explode. And so we say mindfulness is like the place in the middle where you're really connected to what you're feeling, but you're neither immersed in it and overcome by it, nor pushing it away. And so there's a kind of inherent balance right in this, in the stance of mindfulness, you could say. This is the season of gifting and Wouldn't it be awesome to gift someone a good hair day? 
Cue Gemist. Gemist makes hair care easy by providing you with personalized recommendations based on your hair data. And just in time for the holidays, they're releasing exclusive holiday bundles that could save you up to 30%. Keep it for yourself or gift one to a friend. I personally love their shampoo and conditioner as well as their hair freshener. This is one of their newer products. You can keep it in your purse and just give yourself a little freshen up. And of course, I've been talking about their shampoo and conditioner for a long time. And with three bundles to choose from, you can find the perfect gift at a fraction of the price. I personally plan on getting people the deluxe set, cream styler, scalp balancing bar, and hair freshener and brush. You already know I've raved about the scalp bar and this bundle includes it. And also Gemma's amazing bar spoils the scalp. The cream styler locks in moisture. The detangling brush gently smooths the hair and the hair freshener refreshes and eliminates odor from too many holiday parties that may or may not be happening this year. So if you want to give the gift of good hair days, check out Gemist. As I mentioned, these bundles are already over 20% off and my listeners will get an additional $5 off bundles with the code RGHGIFT. And with free express shipping, it's perfect for the last second hostess gift. Just visit gemist.com to give someone in your life a good hair day with Gemist. That's gemist.com, G-E-M-M-I-S-T.com and enter the code RGHGIFT at checkout to give someone the best hair of their life. All right, we're in for another holiday season, which is really awesome. For many people, it's the best season, but it's also a little bit more challenging. It means a lot of family. It means a little bit more stress potentially. So it is the season to be jolly, but it also might not feel that way. And that is totally okay. So ease some of the burden with Talkspace Online Therapy. I am obviously a huge fan of taking care of your mental health. There's no question this whole podcast is predicated on the idea that we can support mental health. And in order to raise healthy kids, we need to be healthy parents. Talkspace is ready to help you start feeling better by setting goals with your Talkspace therapist, having tools to cope, And Talkspace offers individual therapy, couples therapy, and even medication prescription services as needed. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform. There are thousands of licensed therapists available to you, and they are across dozens of specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. And the reality is that for many people who are interested in therapy, they cannot find the time to carve out except now you can because Talkspace works around your schedule at your convenience and you have live video sessions that give you a dedicated therapist from the privacy and ease of your own home or office. So if you need a little support to help you through this end of the year, if you want to start building toward a better upcoming year, Talkspace is here to help. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code HUMANS. That's $100 off when you use HUMANS at Talkspace.com. I hope everybody is taking good care of yourselves, however you're finding support. And now another sponsor who is committed to making sure that we are healthy and taking care of our health. Remember, You need to keep going to your doctors. You need to find doctors. And when you need a doctor, you want to get it now, not in a few days, not in a few weeks, and definitely not months later. So if you need to see an MD ASAP, here is a solution for you. ZocDoc. You download the free ZocDoc app. That's the easiest way you can find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. And with ZocDoc, you can search for local doctors who take your insurance, read verified patient reviews, and book an appointment in person or video chat. Never wait on hold with a receptionist again. Just get these appointments scheduled and make them happen. Whether you need a primary care physician, a dentist, a dermatologist, an eye doctor, or other specialist, ZocDoc has you covered. So ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. 
now is the time to prioritize your health. And remember, when you prioritize your health, you're prioritizing your kids' health. Go to ZocDoc.com slash humans and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as right now. That's zocdoccom slash humans. I'm Sinead Grimes-Beach. And I'm Annalyn McCord. After years spent playing best friends on screen on 90210. And fighting like hell behind the scenes. Ah, yes. How could I forget? (laughs) We made it out of our time in Young Hollywood on a show that shared names with the most iconic zip code in the world. Bonded for life, but not without a shit ton of baggage in tow. Now we are back together letting it all hang out on our new podcast, Unzipped. Tune in and unzip with us and our brilliant guests every Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. So many people say to kids, let it go. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting because letting go is such a big part of mindfulness. Let it go. I'm not sure how, how, where that fits in, but I wonder if you could help clarify the idea of letting go, because I do think we cling to the emotions that we're feeling. And the big point of this is, especially on a podcast for parents, is that if we can do this for ourselves, because everybody asks, how can you teach kids to be mindful? That's like a big hot topic. And it's sometimes it's self-regulation, but the big thing that you can do is do it for yourself. (laughs) So my excitement about having you here is the opportunity for the grownups to have this experience. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the kids follow. Or even if they don't, we can untangle ourselves from the, all of the different feelings that I think one thing that you said that happens a lot is if a child is having a tantrum about something, mm-hmm. they didn't get what they wanted, we can spiral as parents into not only do we have to deal with this moment, but also if we don't deal with it in this particular way, the child's going to do this forever about everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. instead of just that moment where they're just really wanting that cookie. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking just about some of the sort of catchphrases in mindfulness people have taken and maybe even misinterpreted them along mm-hmm. with thinking positively, like all of those things that happen. And then the internet, I mean, the internet, I sound a hundred. And then you know, social media happens and they're just misinterpretations. And I love all these kernels that you have to make very Mm -hmm. concrete these ideas. And so letting go is one of them that I wanted to grab, that I wanted to cling to. That's great. Because I wasn't sure, you know, I suppose it must depend on the age of the child, whether that's a, you know, welcomed message or not. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, language is hard and words are hard. And some people don't like the phrase let it go because they think it implies like disliking what's going on and trying to shove it away or something like that. But it's really not that. Um, it's almost like seeing the ways in which we we might cling to something. And I mean, there was one period in my life where I was going over and over and over and over some doleful situation that had not happened and of course may never happen and uh and I said to myself why are you rehearsing that Mm. you know like Mm -hmm. let's you know you see yourself going down a certain road you realize I've been down this road 70 billion times already I think I'll just do a course correction here you know yeah and realizing that attention is actually malleable and where we give our attention and what we pay attention to at some point becomes like a choice is very empowering. And that doesn't mean that temptation doesn't arise um, to go down that old road or, you know, we don't start down that old road. We usually do. But then you see what's happening and you think, well, let me pay attention to this. And that's one of the reasons we have something like the breath or the body which is a means of bringing mindfulness into everyday life. So if you choose to do a formal meditation practice, then like I have a friend who's a neuroscientist 
Her name is Amishi Josh. She has a book that just came out about attention. And what she says, her lab's at the University of Miami. What she says is that what her lab found was that if you practice meditation for 12 minutes a day, uh, you'll actually see results. And wow, I'm always astonished when people say that because no one seems to be saying, you know, you have to sit in some pretzel-like pose for 17 hours a day to get any results. Like 12 minutes is really not that much. And I tease her because she is a friend. And I say, well, I don't know if it's that healthy to go for the bare minimum. And, you know, and, <laughs> and of course, nobody knows exactly, but it's just indicative of the fact that a little bit of practice every day can actually yield benefit. And so let's say you meditate for 12 minutes a day and you, she also, by the way, says three to five times a week. And I tell her, I tell her as is true for me, just based on self-knowledge, that's harder for me because for me, it would be like Monday and I'll think, oh, I'll start on Wednesday. And then it'd be Wednesday and I'll think I'll do it three times on Saturday, but every day Mm -hmm. is every day, you know? And, Mm -hmm. you know, let's say you use the breath in the way that we did in the exercise that we did together as the place you come back to, as the place you find rest and so on. And then you're at work or you're commuting or you're in the grocery store and somebody's getting really angry and you're getting really anxious. You don't need equipment. You don't need to like, open up the closet door and pull something out. You don't need to put in earphones. It's like you have your breath. It's right there. It's a completely portable resource. You don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to look weird. You just start paying attention to the feeling of the breath and you have a way of coming back to yourself, of feeling more grounded, feeling more present, not being so immersed in the pressures going on around you. And when we come back to ourselves and come back to the moment in that way, we come back to our values. We remember, well, this is really important to me to be kind or to do this or do that or say what I have to say. And So we use some object often like the breath or something else happening in the body in the formal meditation, if you choose to do formal meditation, because it's right there with us wherever we go. And then we can just, you know, we just need to remember to pause sometimes Mm -hmm before we send the email, before we lash out or before we we respond to something. And so the act of practicing pausing makes it easier in those moments when you're feeling more and you want to push send. Well, we don't even know what we're feeling. You know, often we just are the habit of we write the email, we push send. So how, if somebody is just like, okay, I'm sold. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sold. I want to get started. What do you recommend? Let's say this is their first time, although I'm pretty sure, (laughs) I feel like we've been as a group talking about mindfulness a lot in this community and just in general, it's really gotten to be since you, since you brought this into this world, it's, it's gotten pretty popular. (laughs) But I still wonder if somebody's just like, I know it's something I I want to do, but I just don't know where to get started. What would you recommend? I think, you know, what I usually say to people is like, think what is really a reasonable structure for you. I'm just one of those people who's very served by structure. You know, so if I was just starting out, I might say, I think I can practice every day if you're like me, you know, or three to five times a week for 15 minutes a day. Let's say it's every day for 15 minutes a day for a month or two weeks, whatever seems reasonable to you. So it has to be a reasonable structure that you feel you can really commit to. And then you do it. Even if it feels completely crummy, even if it feels like, oh God, you know, I should go to sleep. I haven't thought about this all day, but, you know, just to get it done. And, um, you know, there's a lot of flexibility. You could be lying down, you could be walking, you could, well, eyes open, of course, if you're walking, and or you could be sitting, or mm-hmm. uh, you could be sitting on a couch, you know, and there's a lot of flexibility about the formality of it. I call it formal in the sense of it's a dedicated period where you're not also doing something else, like your vacation planning or something. 
Well, that may come up, but it's not your intention. And so figure out what's reasonable for you and do it. And then, you know, I have a book called Real Happiness, which has a lot of guided meditations in it. Um, There's certainly any amount of um, recordings. You know, we don't have tapes anymore. We don't even have CDs anymore. (laughs) Recordings. Uh, If you find it beneficial to follow someone's voice, some people love it. Some people hate it. You know, like that woman's voice kept interrupting my meditation. Somebody once complained to me, meaning me, you know, (laughs) Uh, but if you find it helpful, you could listen to something or it's not necessary. I mean, the most important thing is that you kind of figure out what to do. And I also encourage the reason I, I say it's something like the book or an online class or something is because we can bring so much judgment, so so much self-judgment into the process. And it's so kind of unfair. Like a lot of people would say to me, you know, a couple of years ago, if I was in some social situation and they'd say, what are you doing? I'd say, I teach meditation. And they would, they would kind of go, oh, you know, I tried that once, I failed at it. And we don't believe you can ever fail at it. But usually what they were thinking is, I couldn't stop my thinking. I couldn't make my mind blank. I couldn't have only beautiful emotions or whatever. And, you know, because we're defining mindfulness as a relational quality, it depends on how we are relating to what's coming up, not on what's coming up. You know, so we can be mindful of joy. We can be mindful of sorrow. We can be mindful of really anything because it means being with what's going on to the best of our ability without so many add-ons getting in the way, you know, without holding on, without pushing it away and just connecting, oh, this is what's happening right now. And, you know, so think what's what's right for you and then see if you can do it for that period of time. And I would also say, and this is very difficult for a lot of people, when I say benefit or um, something coming from the practice, we don't tend to see it say in that 15 minute period each day, you might still have lots Mm -hmm. of thoughts. You might still be sleepy, whatever it is. But if you look at your life, that's where you'll actually see the difference. And that's where it counts because that's why we practice, you know, is to have a different life. And um, you'll see that when you make a mistake, you're so much kinder to yourself and you can pick up and begin again or meeting a stranger Uh, you're actually kind of interested in them instead of what we usually do, which is so crazily self-preoccupied. Like, what do they think of me? Do they like me? You know, never even really noticing who they are or what they're saying or how are we in a challenging time and, and meeting adversity. And you will see a difference. And it's hard to remember that's where we have to look, but that's what happens. So is there, because I, I do think that it's so intimidating Yeah, and it's, but then you're describing what sounds so simple. Well, I think it is simple. What's very hard is actually doing it. It's a little like, um, <laughs> you know, true. carrying your yoga mat with you wherever you go and never getting on it. You know, that's easier. And I think, you know, for most of us uh, in the West, there's a certain training we have, which tends toward abstraction rather than actually putting something into practice. Like when I wrote Real Happiness, which was 11 years ago now, it's Real Happiness, The Power of Meditation, a 28-day program. So it's actually a program in exploring these different kinds of meditation. And so many people, when I went on the book tour, uh, would come up to me to get the book signed and say, I'm buying your book for my cousin because I could never do it. They really need it. And Mm -hmm. I used to think, well, this is nice for me that someone bought my book and nice for the cousin, but what's this I could never do it thing, you know? Yeah. Like, I know it's a great idea, but no, I could never do that. That's right. I have that with many things. This isn't them, but, but I get it. I get that yoga would be one of them for me. Yeah. Well, it's a good example because we can actually buy a lot of stuff, you know, like, yeah, let me get all, a new yoga mat. Let me get Mm-hmm. And you know, it will benefit you. There's so many things like that, but you know, it will benefit you. But this really, even though the hard part is doing it, it's hard to can find even 
15 minutes to carve out of the day. Mm -hmm. If everybody this week sets the intention to just try it, you don't even need to have everything set up perfectly. You could be anywhere. I mean, is that true or Mm -hmm. is that just? Yes, you could be anywhere. Um, And 15, you know, yeah. I mean, I was padding it. You know, you could say 12. I've also had neuroscientist friends of mine who say nine minutes, you know, a day. But again, you know, you can get sort of ridiculous and paring it down. So, But I do think it's so incredible how nine minutes seems like, of course, anybody can do that. And yet we all know that it's hard to find that time. But I think if it really does, if, if we give it a shot and you can feel that somehow your nervous system responds a little differently the next time your toddler tantrums or your teenager tells you that you have bad skin, (laughs) (laughs) just whatever charming thing comes out that you've given yourself the space each day. I mean, I wonder though, what is typical? Like when you're sitting there, let's say it's for nine minutes or 12 minutes and you're trying to pay attention with your thoughts on something particular and you are, your thoughts are going to move just to help normalize that you're not going to be like when you sit and you've been doing this for how long? Uh, 50 years. Isn't that incredible? Wow. Yes. I mean, wow. 50 years. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be my next question is just, I mean, that is extraordinary because 50 years ago, I'm sure a lot of people thought you were pretty uh, out of the box. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was 18 when I went to India. I went, uh, it's like my junior year abroad. I was in college. I, I went to college when I was 16 as a product of the New York City public school system, which liked to have people skip grades. And um, I took an Asian philosophy course when I was a sophomore in college because there was a philosophy requirement and I just chose that one. And it was in the context of the course that I heard there was such a thing as meditation, that if people practice meditation, they would feel more balanced, more uh, happy, you know. Uh, And I was not like many people, you know, I had a very traumatic childhood and I was not really aware of my whole inner emotional landscape. I just knew I was quite unhappy. And so. I heard that I was going to college in Buffalo, New York, and I looked around Buffalo and I did not see it anywhere because it was a long time ago. And so I created this independent study project and presented it to the university. And I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. And they said, sure. okay." So off I went. (laughs) and That was it. I mean, incredible. But now you are one of the people who has made it so that there's a whole world here locally that people can, you can, but you certainly, there are ways to do it now. Definitely. But I wonder, so you've been doing this for 50 years. Would you say, and you've taught, I can't, I can't imagine you could count how many gazillions of of people, but Mm -hmm. what's the inside of the mind of of a meditator who's just started? I know that's a weird question, but like, No, no, no. I mean, I think, remember, well, there are different facets of the practice. One is, you know, we may spend a good deal of time and return to something like resting our attention on the feeling of the breath. So then when something else comes up, it may be that our intention is to see if we can let go and just come back to feeling the breath. So that's grounding. It helps gather our energy, we get perspective on what came up because we're not all involved in it. Or it may be that the things that come up, emotions or physical sensations are very strong. We can't reasonably let go and come back to the breath, but we spend time being with them in a different way. We notice all those add-ons and stuff that we, you know, are reacting to and see if we can be with say, the emotion in, in a more balanced way. So that's, that's another facet of the practice. And depending on what's happening, you know, you may have tons of thoughts. You may have almost no thoughts. It may be very quiet. You may feel restless. You may feel joyful. But all of it is within the scope of where mindfulness can go. And so 
It really can be anything. I'd say the characteristic is there's more space, you know, and there's less judgment. Like when I went to India, for example, you know, I'd never been in therapy and I had never really looked inside. And and so I was really shocked, you know, at all of the kinds of um, emotions I was discovering. I'm somewhat famous for once having marched up to my first teacher, whose name was S.N. Goenka, and looking him in the eye and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was on him. Clearly, it was all his fault. And he just laughed, you know. And of course, I'd been hugely angry, but I hadn't seen it before, you know. And so it's not like everything is going to just be totally serene and lovely all the time, although there are times like that for sure. But we learn how to deal with whatever comes up in a different way. And so uh, at the very least, we're not making it worse, but we're also making it a whole lot better because of the ability to be more balanced with what's happening and to learn more deeply what we're experiencing. And so whenever you get those moving thoughts or those Mm -hmm. judgment self I guess this goes into a whole layer of self-compassion that we probably don't have time for. But I think one of the things missing for parents is self-compassion. There's just so much berating ourselves about everything. And so I could see a world where even being introduced to mindfulness and saying, try this practice every day and it won't necessarily work in the way that you are envisioning. Like whatever your idea of it is can turn into more giving up because it's just another thing to not do well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, well, that's why it's good to have a group or a teacher or a recording or a book that will remind you you are doing it well, you know, that we have these impossible standards that are just unreal. And so uh, the things we think are like me, you know, I thought that anger was a terrible sign and an awful flaw of myself as a human being. But it was good. It was so good that I could actually see it and acknowledge it instead of having it determining so many of my choices without my realizing it, you know, and uh, so many of the things we think are bad are really kind of good, you know? And so, yes, you know, to have that reminder because I, I reread the chapter or because I listened to the talk again, or because I have this group, a meditation group where I get to ask questions and I hear other people's questions and I hear, oh, yeah, they're sleepy, too. I guess it's OK or, you know, whatever. And so it's just helpful or an app. You know, these days there's so many and good ones. You know, that if there's some context for yeah, our practice. Do you have a favorite app or two can, that you uh, Yeah, I mean, the one I'm on the most is probably uh, 10% happier. Great. And there's certainly, you know, particular apps for kids and you know but if you start with 10 percent happier i think it could lead you to discovering some others as well and i think that what you just said also parallels parenting in general mm-hmm. like you're finding out much of the time that not only is what you're doing okay mm-hmm. and good enough and also you you do need a community and also some of the bad stuff leads to such great connection mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always try to bring it back to like all these parallels, but I actually think that's why I love this mindfulness work because it just, it really does seem to feed that part of that, that part that is so painful in this world of parenting that just feels so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think it's, it's certainly relevant there because there's so many myths, you know, about what parenting should feel like and what it should look like. And, And it's probably kind of relevant everywhere. Like I was just doing a prep session for a webinar for people who were international humanitarian aid workers. And and somebody was saying, you know, the hardest thing of all in a world where you're trying to solve problems and, and be the one who goes into these situations and makes them better is to admit your own vulnerability and so we talked about, oh, maybe there needs to be like a group. Maybe it couldn't be within the workplace so easily, mm-hmm. but amongst peers, like let's have a vulner- vulnerability group. Speaking of vulnerability group, which by the way, is all of my parenting groups. I, 
I really, they could be renamed that way. That's great. <laughs> How do you define vulnerability? Because I, I know, again, this feels like these are these huge concepts, but mm-hmm. I know that you have ways to sort of talk about how we can understand what it really means to be vulnerable. Well, somebody uh, that I was on this particular call with was talking about being an educator and working with educators and that they used to have these groups inspired by Parker Palmer, who's a great educator, called the Whoopsie Group or something like that, where people would talk about their their mistakes or their close calls or something like that. Uh, So that's part of it. But I actually tend to divine vulnerability as being truthful because there's so many ways, let's say you're recounting a conversation with somebody and you're very accusatory, like they don't listen and they don't pay attention and they don't care about anybody but themselves. But there's a, a deeper truth, which is that I was seeking uh, a lot of closeness with this person and it wasn't reciprocated or I wanted this or I wanted that. And to admit that, to speak of it. And of course, it's not appropriate in every situation, but uh, even to admit it just to yourself is more truthful. You know, that's that's the vulnerability is like, I really wanted something. I wanted closeness. I wanted this to look different. And it doesn't, you know, so I'm not getting what I wanted. And uh, I think there's a, a tremendous relationship between being authentic and truthful and, and admitting our own vulnerabilities. <sighs> and why is it so hard to be so truthful? Like I keep bringing it back to this, but just thinking about when people talk about the joys of parenting and how beautiful it is and how much they love their kids. It's so (laughs) easier to say than the end. Also, sometimes I'm sobbing in a corner because I just feel like a failure or I'm sick of this or all of the stuff that you feel ashamed to admit because somehow it takes away from the stuff that is okay to admit. Well, I mean, I think that's just conditioning, you know, like we have different family structures, you know, of course we have sometimes different cultural influences. And then there's this sort of, certainly in America, you know, there's the kind of the predominant ethos comes through mainstream media and things like that. And it's all got to look perfect. And, you know, I used to, because my family did not look that perfect. And Uh, So I always felt really different, but, you know, I used to look at those sort of depictions and, and the media and think, who are they? You know, like those, those others, those others where everyone talks to one another and no one feels left out and no one's got a problem with substances or, you know, no one died too soon or, you know, like, where are they? And it's, you know, terrible position to be in to, be in one of those families and feel like it's wrong, you know, like you have to hide it in some way. So that, that actually brings me to, there's some thoughts about mindfulness that somehow it's not for deep pain, because if you're going through really, really intense stuff, there's like, I don't have time for that, but your whole experience is, and so much of your work is it's in fact quite the opposite. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, some of it is context, you know, because like I'm speaking to you today from Barry, Massachusetts, where co-founded a retreat center, the Insight Meditation Society in 1976. So it's been here for a while and we were just closed for over a year and a half and just opened up three days ago. And, you know, if you're going through something immediate, you know, really difficult. An intensive silent retreat is probably not the right form for you, but that doesn't mean practice is all wrong. And Mm -hmm. practicing alone may not be perfect in in the sense of, you know, we tend to bring so many habits into everything we do. Like I could never do this right, or I'm not as good as anybody else or whatever it is, you know, to have a, a voice, a teacher or a coach or a guide, you know, just reminding you, you're doing fine. You know, you're doing fine and you're not going to get it all done at once. It's not a question of sitting here and gritting your teeth and uh, forgetting about things like balance, you know, and, and 
that's not the point. You know, so if we're in very acute suffering of some kind, it's just so helpful if we can arrange it, you know, to have someone we can ask questions to, someone who can remind us, like, it's not a race. You know, like I was in the hospital a few years ago uh, with this infection. And then when I was starting to get better and I was walking first with a walker up and down the hospital corridors as one does. And the first time I got out of bed and was walking, I was with this physical therapist and I was on the walker and, and she stopped me at one point. She said, it's not a race, you know, you'll get further if you, if you just stop now and then and rest. And so that became kind of my mantra. It's not a race, you know, uh, it's like, you know, if we have that conditioning, I want to have to do it all at once. I have to, you know, it just helps us to have somebody reminding us, like, it's not a race, you know, it's cool. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Again, putting you on the spot. Are there some mantras and mantras, not, not actual mantras, but just some mm-hmm. phrases that are good reminders to sort of ground us throughout the day in these challenging days of busy schedules, trying to get through everything without, you know, with adding the pause is there and adding the self-compassion and adding these layers? Are there just, I guess there, there is a way to find this, which is it, people can listen to you and read your books and yeah. <laughs> courses with you and they will find these kernels of wisdom all the time. But is there Yeah, anything? and I think we make up our own. It's just like, you know, when that woman said to me, it's not a race, I thought I'm keeping that, you know? Mm-hmm. Or like when I say to myself, why are you rehearsing that? Or the pause is really the point, you know? It's just like, you can sprinkle it throughout your day. Like people have their computer make a funny sound or, you know, like you get into habits, like don't press send when you've written the email, you know, use the completion of the email as a time to just take a few breaths, you know, and then read it again and decide if you want to send it or you want to amend it in some way. And you just play. It's very fun, actually, <laughs> you know, just to have these moments where you're simply being. And if you could raise all the kids in the world (laughs) with a couple of these pauses or a couple of these moments so that they're sort of primed, I guess kids are, that's the wild Mm -hmm. thing. What are some things parents can do to sprinkle those? I mean, can you, is there, is there, I know there are programs and you mentioned one of them, but in general, just in walking through life with a baby, with a toddler, with a school-aged kid with a teenager, are there moments that you think this would be great to wire into their life now versus rewire later? I mean, I think there are, I mean, they're all, you know, age appropriate in some way. Like I've written a bunch of loving kindness practices for kids. And uh, when we do loving kindness practice, it's not about the breath, but it's silently using certain phrases like maybe happy, maybe peaceful or something like that may be safe. And then it starts with really trying to make it concrete. Like, what does it feel like when someone holds your hand crossing the street? Well, that's what we call safe. And, you know, think of a kid that you like, and let's repeat these phrases a little bit for them. Think of a kid you used to like, but that you're mad at right now. I've never known how to translate the loving kindness meditation for my kids. And that's so awesome. I wonder if, if we can, because for people who don't know this meditation practice, maybe we can go through it and it's something they could do with their kids. If you're, yeah, I mean, basically it's, you know, set, uh, settling on a few phrases that the vibe of which is gift giving it's offering. Like you hand someone a birthday card and say, may you have a great year. So maybe safe, maybe happy, uh, whatever phrases make sense to you. And then we think of these different beings to offer the phrases to, including ourselves. And I say being because it might be a puppy or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like holding someone in your heart for a few moments and, and wishing them well. And, you know, so when I've done it for maybe like, five-year-old kids, you know, something like that. I usually don't do oneself right away, but start with somebody who's really helped you this week or today. That's where I often use the puppy actually, because my friends in this pandemic time adopted a puppy and the whole family is 
much happier. So I think of the puppy and I just smile, you know. And then I did exactly what I described. Think of a kid that you like. Think of a kid you're mad at right now. Still, can you still wish them to be happy and so on? And think of your whole classroom. Think of something bigger in that way. You know, just for a few minutes. And I found children tend to really love it. And it's often a bedtime ritual and so on. It's so good. It's my bedtime ritual. <laughs> but I, I, I love that. Um, thank you. Sharon, how can people find you and learn from you and experience your work? Uh, well, probably the best way to find me is through my website, which is SharonSalzberg.com. Uh, and I'm on Twitter and, and all of those things as well. And, and that's all on the website. Um, I've written 11 books, um, <laughs> which is astonishing to me. And I'm, I'm in the middle of writing number 12 right now. But the, the book that I've been referring to is really the kind of a guidebook to all kinds of meditation practice. And it's Real Happiness. My most recent book was called Real Change. I'm on the real train. Um, it's called Real Change. And that's actually coming out in paperback. Uh, the end of November. I feel so, so lucky to be able to share you with everybody listening. And I just feel so lucky to have had the opportunity to learn from you. And I, I'm excited for other people to to have that in their day. But we can close maybe with just a one minute something. Sure. One we again sit comfortably. See if you can settle your attention on the feeling of the breath, just the normal, natural breath. Wherever you feel it most distinctly, the nostrils, the chest, or the abdomen, bring your attention there and rest. And if your attention wanders, remember the key is being able to let go and simply return. So thank you so much.